Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kasumu, and today I had the immense pleasure of interviewing Jesse Middleton. Now, for those who don't know who Jesse is, he's a general partner at Flybridge Capital, which is a seed and early stage fund. Prior to joining Flybridge in 2016, Jesse was an early executive at a small startup called WeWork, um, which is one of the fastest growing and most valuable startups in history. He co-founded something called WeWork Labs in 2011, which became WeWork's global startup incubator. He ran WeWork X, mergers and acquisitions, startup investments, business and digital product development, as well as inside sales during his time at WeWork. Jesse is also a serial entrepreneur, which we'll talk about during the interview. And he was an active angel investor before joining Flybridge. He invested in companies such as Squire, FitMob, which was acquired by ClassPass, Remote Year, and many, many more. This episode is a bit longer than usual, but honestly, guys, it's really, really worth it. We go into so much detail into Jesse's background from dropping out of college to his first exit. That's enough for me, guys. Let's get into the action. So, Jesse, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So, Jesse, when you're at a WeWork event, um, (laughs) how do you introduce yourself? (laughs) Uh, I would say it depends on the event. Uh, No, so, I mean, look, I was on the early team, the founding team at WeWork. Um, Most of the time I'll tell people I started out as a friend and sort of advisor and consultant with WeWork. I met Adam and Miguel early on, and they had this massive vision and one of the key areas that they thought would make it successful would be technology. And my background was in tech. So we were a good partnership. And so I co-founded what we called WeWork Labs, which is our take on an incubator. Mm-hmm. And I helped the you know early team build out departments, markets, technology, all these things across, you know, almost six years. Um, and got to be, you know, quite honestly, fortunately along for the ride. Uh, in in what will hopefully you know be one of the most successful companies in history. Yeah. I, I hope. <laughs> I think you're you're on the right path. So before we start getting into WeWork Labs and everything you've done post WeWork Labs, walk me through what actually led you to that point in life. Yeah, because so you had a company when you were 16, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, my parents are small business owners. Uh, so my whole life, I think I I imagined I would be like them. I imagined I work for myself. Uh, I grew up in a tiny little town in Pennsylvania called the Village of Pleasant Valley. There's probably about 20 houses there, wow. uh, mostly farmland. But when I was 16, I was really into computers, had been since I was about eight. Um, and I started a web hosting company with a friend of mine. I knew nothing about building a company. I knew nothing about uh, venture capital. I had never heard of it. But we just built this company um, together, made some money out of it, wound up selling it, uh, selling the, the customers to another web hosting company and it probably paid for most of my beer through college. <laughs> what, um, what, was, what was the company? What was company it? was called Get It Connected. It was literally, we built this company during a rise of shared hosting. So you could go to this place called Web Hosting Forum. I think the website's still alive and people use it. And like people were selling like gigs of storage for life, for life, for like a dollar. Like it was like you could buy hosting for life for a dollar. And so it was a very competitive time. But I think we focused on trying to tailor our our product and like our offering to customers who had slightly higher bandwidth challenges. So at one point in time, we hosted a website that some people that are listening may, may know of called Homestar Runner, uh, which was like this fun, like digital, one of the first digital like web comics. And it was huge amongst oh. us nerds. Um, <laughs> and so we hosted that for a little while. 
Um, but yeah, it was it was it was a web hosting company. It was pretty basic. I mean, at, at this point, you know, we'd look at, you know. AWS is, you know, to some extent, they offer web hosting services and obviously so much more uh, rack space, similar. Yeah. But this is just early on in that in that industry. Cool. And then, so you sold that. When you so we sold that. I went to college. Um, did you pay for your own college? Uh, I did wind <laughs> up paying for my own college. Wow, yeah. Um, so I took out loans, um, but I wound up paying those. Uh, funny story. My my grandparents offered to cover one of my loans. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but uh, at the time they offered to cover the loan. And I said, "Listen, I'll pay you back." And they're like, yeah, 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 don't worry about it. Like, well, we got you. Yeah. And at the, right around the same time, I, I told my grandfather about this awesome tech company that he should look at buying stock in, which was uh, an electric car company uh, at the time, Tesla. Yeah. It was early on. And I remember tracking the stock and calling him one day and saying, hey, it's time to sell. I know how many shares you bought. I know what the price is at now. You've crossed the $27,000 mark, which was the loan that you paid for me. Mm. Sell it now, <laughs> and I paid you back. I said, yeah. if you decide to keep it, that's on you. Yeah. Um, and he sold it not long after. So, so I paid for my own college um, through, through different methods. I went to school for a couple of years, and I went to Drexel. And Drexel is a co-op program. So I was into tech. I wanted to work. Um, I went on this co-op, and this company that I worked for was a 104-year-old privately held manufacturing company spread across the U.S., uh, Europe, Mexico, and uh, China. Wow. And I was the only person that had probably ever worked for the company that knew anything about network security. Mm. It's just what I like to do in my spare time. And so they wound up offering me a job to switch to going to school part-time, and I got to travel the world with them doing network security work. So they renewed my passport, which had expired, uh, gave me a company card, and they put me in a plane to Hong Kong wow. uh, when I was 19. And so I did that for a couple of years, um, traveling around, doing work for them. I left and I started consulting for other companies. I, at that point, had dropped out of college. I thought, I'm making more money than I would have imagined I'd make if I graduated college. And I love what I'm doing. I get to work. And I get to kind of work for myself as a consultant. It's kind of doing all the things that I wanted. And one of the companies that I consulted for was a company based in New York City, a public company called LivePerson. And the CEO of LivePerson called me and said, you know, you've been doing this project for us. We're looking for somebody to join who's going to head up tech. We want somebody young with new ideas. You know, we're 12 years old. And, uh, and he moved me to New York. And so I split my time between New York and Tel Aviv, uh, launched an office in San Francisco. And it was totally not the right fit for me. Yeah. Like working for a public company was not that much fun. Mm. Um, some people love it. wasn't for me. Um, I had a great team. Uh, the product was awesome. We worked with companies, our customers like Bank of America, Apple, Microsoft. Like, you know, cool companies that have as customers. But it just wasn't the role for me, and I wanted to go back to working for myself. So I met this guy, Mike Oliver, uh, who was a technologist turned attorney who wanted to go back into tech. Wow. Um, and uh, Mike and I came up with this idea for this company called GetMinders, which was supposed to help people um, manage their medications and their health yeah. um, in a world where what our, our hypothesis was, and I'll tell you where we really got it wrong, uh, but our hypothesis was that there were going to be plenty of apps that were going to come out that were going to help you track this stuff, but a very large portion of the population, in fact, mostly the ones that actually need this help, weren't going to own a smartphone anytime soon. Mm -hmm. They weren't going to be you know, using, an, well, I don't think iPads were out yet, or maybe they had just launched it. They weren't going to have a tablet. They, right. they weren't tech savvy. They were yeah. my grandparents, right? Yeah. They were... They were um, oh, peace. Yeah, and, and so... So, there, so what we looked at was, well, how would we deliver the same value that maybe an app with an alarm would deliver, but without that? And so we built this product called GetMinders. I left LivePerson. We raised some, some angel money for it here in New York City, which is actually what got me started looking at venture capital as potentially where I wanted to go in my career. Right. 
I met some really smart angels who put money in and, uh, and we built this product and we were right about one thing. Plenty of people were going to have, you know, health challenges who weren't going to own smartphones. My yeah. grandfather had Parkinson's. He never owned a smartphone. Um, so any app that was going to come out or, you know, wearable in the future, you know, that wasn't for him. And GetMinders would either call you or text you if you did happen to text on a, on a regular basis to check in with you. Had you taken this medication, you could respond with a text message or with a keypad on the phone. You respond with how you're feeling. Had you taken the medications? Did you need help? So we had a lot of people that wanted this product, but our one of my biggest lessons in that was we started the company believing that there was a problem that needed to be solved, and I think there was, but what we didn't think at all about was who would get enough value out of it that they could afford to pay for it. Mm. And so we went about trying to sell to pharma companies because people buying their medication was important to them and you wouldn't buy it if you didn't continue to take it. Yeah. We looked at insurance companies because they have a very high cost of people you know, not taking medication, becoming more ill. We looked at hospital systems because they have to see these patients on a yeah. regular basis. We looked at families and caregivers. And our issue was, and you'll see this uh, as we talk a little bit more, I have this trend in my life, which is I've tried to spread myself too thin. So we're like, yeah. we're going to answer to four different customers. Yeah. We're going to build four products, uh, you know, or at least four businesses. Yeah. And not one of those really took off. There were reasons in each. And yeah. so ultimately, we felt like the business wasn't viable. Mm. Interestingly enough, a couple of years later, we got a lot of interest from pharma companies. And I think had we really pushed on pharma... We were a little early, but we probably could have got in there yeah. and actually built something in it where pharma realized like, holy crap, there's billions of dollars being lost by yeah. people not taking medication. Mm. So, so that was, that was business number one. And at that time, actually <laughs> you were doing two other businesses. Yeah. So, so there were a couple things that happened at the time when I left live person, we started this company. Um, I was looking at a couple of things, but one of them was where was he going to build this company? The options for working with other entrepreneurs, which is the environment that I wanted to be in, were, were relatively limited in New York at the time. There were yep. a couple of co-working spaces. There were a couple of uh, incubators. So I think Techstars was just getting started in New York. So you'd apply, you'd spend three months, get to demo day. I didn't feel like we were there yet. Um, there was a venture-backed co-working space uh, called Dogpatch Labs near Union Square, okay. um, which I spent a couple months in. But really, um, there wasn't a place where people were just all working on their companies in kind of what I would call like a safe environment, a place where you could turn to your neighbor and be like, I'm scared as fuck about this investor meeting that I'm going to walk into. Yeah. Um, and they could say, yeah, I just did that. Yeah. Like, and it was scary yeah. and I got through it. Yeah. Um, that safe environment didn't exist. And I was looking for a space to work and a buddy of mine, Matt, uh, had met these guys who were opening a co-working space in Soho at 154 grand and it was called WeWork. Mm. At the time, it was WeWorkNYC.com. It wasn't even going to be global yet or outside the city. Yeah. Um, and I walked in there and saw the space and was like, this is awesome. Mm. I love the space. They have one floor open. And I met Adam and Miguel. Right. We got talking and within you know a couple of hours of hanging out and probably having a few beers, we realized that there was an opportunity to create sort of this, our take on what an incubator in the city might look like. And, right. we, and we decided to launch this concept that we later called WeWork Labs. So the second thing I was doing in parallel to GetMinders was WeWork Labs. That must have been insane. I mean, I mean, it, it was awesome because, you know, I didn't know what WeWork was going to become. But what I did know was that I had this opportunity to bring, you know, 50 of our friends together who were all starting companies 
and we'd all get to share in this experience growing. And Adam and Miguel were just this powerhouse of a team that were like charging forward and building this like world dominating, you know, the professional network of the future, whatever. And I was like, listen, it sounds really cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it'll be successful, but it sounds really cool. Yeah. So I'm like, let me help. Right. Yeah. I yeah. want to help with this. So my co-founder and GetMinders, Mike, was like, cool, you can work on this thing in parallel. We'll work, you know, that was the beginning of it, sucking up more and more of my time. But um, so that was the second thing. And then what we realized a few months into building GetMinders is that there was this opportunity to not only deliver sort of value and information, mm. but there were things that our users were asking us for. And this is a dilemma of like the customer is not always right. Yeah. Um, but there were things that our users were asking us for that we thought, wow, we can make some real money on that. Yeah. <laughs> and that sounded really good at the time. Um, again, you know, hypothesis number two here was we'll deliver this free service, this information service, which is gonna regularly communicate with you. And then you're gonna tell us the things you need. And what we started was this product called Guy House. And Guy House is really focused on delivering items that you need on a regular basis. So it's sort of your, your essentials, right? Yeah. And I read it somewhere, well, you guys were tapped as the birch box for men. Yeah, so so we got sort of lumped into that. And I think what's funny is hindsight's twenty twenty, right? You know, yeah. maybe there was a big business in that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Trunk Club wound up being a pretty big business that was acquired. I think it's been marked down since. But, you know, Birchbox has done very well. Like, but again, we weren't focused 100% on it. We were we were sort of like GetMinders was a service, and then we would take that and bring it over. And when we talk to you about how you're feeling, you know, how's your day going, we could then say to you like, Hey, do you need anything? And yeah. you'd be like, Yeah, uh, actually, I need like toilet paper, and I'm 80 years old, and I can't go out and shop for it. We say, Great, we can deliver that. We can deliver it in a premium price. You know, you're gonna pay for it on 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 a schedule. So really, we're working on these three concepts at the same time. Um, they're all huge concepts. <laughs> they could have been. Uh, you know, they're all like, they're full like time. a piece of software, you know? They no, no. They, so much logistical. They, they had movement, they had moving pieces, they had real world implications. And quite honestly, what I, what I learned through all of this um, was that I liked working on a lot of projects at one time, but I wasn't good at working on a lot of projects yeah. at one time. So each one, you know, in theory, I could have, you know, given you know, maybe 50% to each and worked, you know, an extra 50% more than I otherwise would have. Yeah. But they really all suffered from that scenario. And so we spent um, spent about a year doing that. Um, WeWork Labs grew, um, WeWork started to grow, we started mm -hmm. to get more involved in that. Um, and we wound up pivoting the first two concepts into something completely new, which is a marketing technology. Um, and it was called Backstory, and really interesting. So you merged the two companies, Guy House and Get yeah. Back. It's they, they were always um, they were always kind of under one umbrella. We had the company was called Scrimble. It was a word that I came up with as a kid, and so like they were always kind of under this umbrella, but right. they were different businesses. Sure. Um, so we didn't really merge them, and we kind of shut them down. I mean, it was you know they we use maybe some assets from one or the other, but ultimately we launched this new product. With the similar with their backers that we already had, so that was the one thing that we did do is we kept our our investors along. We thought you know maybe we'll make something that's of real value. Yeah, I was here. gonna say what were your investors thinking? They're like this kid is crazy. He's got three companies and he's and he's like just losing our money. Well, so so actually it's funny you say that. Um, all of my investors except for one were active CEOs or founders of companies here in New York. All right. So they were all kind of in it to see me 
and Mike, you know, Mike and I come and become leaders and, you know, build a business. They didn't really care quite honestly what that business was. They were backing us, which is I think what you do in early stage investing. Um, one of our investors, you know, at one point was like, Hey, you should like return our money. <laughs> we didn't have that much more of it left, but yeah. they should return our money. And, and all the rest were like, listen, keep going, you know, see what you can make out of this. Yeah. And it's advice that I've now passed on to some of the companies that I backed as an angel. I think, if you think there's still a chance that you're going to build something really powerful, yeah. um, you know, I say keep going. I mean, I, you know, there, there's a point in time where you look at what's happening, and I'll tell you that point that happened for us, but where you look at what's possible and what you're doing, you kind of say, maybe I'm not as excited, mm. maybe I don't see it. And if you can't see it, like, nobody else is going to be able to see the end, right? So, so I think, you know, we still thought there's something that we believe we can build here. We think it's useful. We had some, we've been talking with Guy House to these big brands and they were starting to look at companies like Amazon and saying like, well, Amazon has all this tech that enables them to like show the right product at the right time. Mm -hmm. You know, you guys are a tech company. Can you help us? Um, that's like asking, like, you know, you're, you're, you're like my grandparents would ask me, they'd be like, you let, you, you're into computers. Like, can you fix my TV? And it's like, yeah, yeah sure. Whatever. <laughs> I can figure it out. Yeah. So, so we started this company, we work was still growing. So then I was splitting my time between, you know, backstory and, and really we work at that point. We work labs. was a part of that. We do um, like literally 12 hour days. Like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was never home. I didn't, I, you know, I, I was married to my wife. She was really supportive. Um, we didn't have a kid yet, so like it was, you know, we just didn't see each other that much. Um, sometimes that's not a bad thing, even. You know, we 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 spent time, you know, on the weekends we travel together every once in a while. But it was, you know, we worked hard, um, and so worked on this for a while. We wound up selling the company to a marketing tech company here in New York, an e-commerce platform that was backed by FirstMark, and I went over to that company to integrate the technology, but I just wasn't into it. And I took a look around and. The one thing I loved doing was working like with other entrepreneurs, that yeah. thing we'd started a couple years prior. Yeah. And so at one point I'm like, oh, maybe I'll make like an incubator. And then my wife kind of looked at me, I think one night and was like, you know, there's this thing we work that you've been helping grow. And it seems like that's kind of what you want to be doing. So why don't you ask if you just be a part of that full time? Yeah. Sorry, just to go back a little bit. Um, so with backstory, what was the time period before you done away with the other two companies, put them together or whatnot, and then you sold it. What was the time period? It was probably about nine months. Oh, um, okay. And so it felt like an eternity. And ultimately, the company that we sold it to, we had a really good relationship with the founder. So, you know, call it an aqua hire. There was a little bit of tech that they were buying. Sure. Um, but at the end of the day, we were serving a similar audience and we were both here in New York and we were the smaller guy, like we just mm -hmm. hadn't figured it out. Yeah. Um, you know, we had some pretty big customers that were doing proof of concepts like Sears.com and other, like, so it wasn't tiny, but we, we really hadn't figured that out. And this other company seemed to be marching towards uh, something bigger. And we really liked the team. You know, you'll find that throughout my life or my career, like I've pretty much always worked chosen to work with people that I loved working with before mm -hmm. anything else um, versus like the biggest idea, the best idea, whatever, you know, sometimes that's worked out. Um, sometimes it hasn't, but I'd rather spend my 12 hour days with somebody that like, I want to be best friends yeah, with than I, than I would like spend 12 hours a day building something really awesome around people that I don't really want to talk to. Yeah, it's important. So, so it was relatively short and you know, we had an opportunity to raise some more money or to sell the company and, and just, I go back to the statement I made before, I couldn't see the end 
goal like at that point and so it wasn't right for me to keep pushing forward um and so you know ultimately you know you look backwards and steve jobs famously says you know you look backwards you can connect the dots but um these decisions were really just lucky breaks you know the luck to meet mike and to leave live person to get involved in the startup ecosystem here in new york the luck to meet adam miguel and get involved in WeWork. the luck to end working on GetMinders, Guy House, Backstory, and a focus 100% of my time on WeWork. Mm. Um, each of these things were, you know, 95% luck, right? They were, they, you know, you, you have to make a decision, but I could have just as easily not met yeah. Adam and Miguel, and then I don't know what I would have been doing now. Um, but I mean, in my, so I read this thing, The Daily Stoic, right? Mm-hmm. You know, my Daily Stoic, a few days ago, was talking about the people who are more likely to be lucky. They're the ones who actually seek luck. Yep. So I guess you were lucky, but you were kind of you kind of engineered the luck. Yeah. So I, I believe that you do create your own luck, um, yeah. or you can. You don't have to. Um, but there's there's one thing which is driving towards a goal, and there's another one where it's sort of a little bit meta, but you're driving towards a goal, and that goal is to find randomness, mm. like but positive randomness. Yeah. And so like my I love people like I like hanging out with people I'm an extrovert I get my energy from being around groups of people and then once I meet those people I like working with them I like helping and that was something that you know we thought about with WeWork Labs Uh, even when I was at live person I was going to you know the New York tech meetup and these other events that were growing up in New York and I was finding young entrepreneurs especially ones that were building like b2b SaaS companies where we were doing that at live person at a hundred million dollar a year company and I was like let me help you. I'll help you reach some customers that I know. I'll help you think about your product roadmap. So I, I enjoy that that part of meeting people is is hearing what they're working on, finding ways mm. to to give them value, and it, it's something that I think leads to you creating your own luck, right? And that's you know those people think about you later um, when they have something interesting, when they have a challenge, when they have an opportunity. And you know when I walked in to talk with Adam. Um, it was my buddy Matt who started labs with me. He and I walked in to talk and Adam's like, listen, I'd love to have you guys here. We haven't raised any money. The company's growing. And I can't afford to hire oh, we two of you. Oh, we hadn't raised any money by then? No. Oh, wow. And he said, I can't afford to pay both of you. And we said, can you afford to pay one of us? And he said, yes. And Matt said, great. We'll just split a salary then. <laughs> and so we literally took a half a salary yeah. each um, for with the intention that hopefully one day we'd take a full salary again. Um, and I, I ran it by my wife and she was okay with that for a period of time, not forever. Yeah. And I guess you guys had some money from the aqua hire. Yeah. Yeah. We, we had some money from that. We, you know, and so it, it was, we had some, a small amount of cushion, let's call it. Yeah. Right. But, but it wasn't gonna be long before we started thinking about, you know, dipping into a savings account or, or a retirement account. Or, and, mm. and that was, it was a calculated risk, right? We yeah. said, I think that there's something really special here about WeWork. We were in three buildings in New York and one in San Francisco at the time. And we were starting to see this network effect. We were starting to see this. People were being drawn to mm. building their businesses in WeWork. And they weren't just looking at it as an office an anymore. Office, yeah, um, they were looking at it as a place to go to meet other smart people who, mm. going back to that, they would create their luck with, right? Yeah. And so I, I thought there's something really special here. There's something very special about Adam and Miguel as leaders in this company and, and I want to work with them. Right. The next, you know, call it three and a half, four years were 
were an unbelievable you know whirlwind where we went from being a company that was building really cool offices with cool events and free beer and coffee to a company that was venture backed to a company that was then you know worth a billion dollars to a company that was then worth ten billion dollars yeah um, there was a five billion dollar mark somewhere in there um, <laughs> and, and really it you know we went to this point I remember in it must have been our fourth or fifth headquarters for WeWork, we were on these two floors in 222 Broadway, and we had a, a Friday afternoon all-company kind of meeting, mm. and everybody came to this space, and we couldn't fit. I mean, we were literally, people were going down the hallway, which had, and I remember standing up in this mezzanine space and just looking down and being like, wow, I can only pick out, like, maybe 100 people that I know here, and there's another 150 that I don't. Mm. And it was this moment where I just was, it was like a magical experience. It was, it was, it was like watching sort of through someone else's eyes. Like it, it couldn't, it, I couldn't rationalize how it got to that yeah. point in my own head. And so I'm looking at this just saying, wow, those people are awesome. Mm. And then, you know, I'd look around me up on the mezzanine cause we were spilling up on the mezzanine and I'd look around me and I'd be like, these people are awesome. And then I'd see other people looking around too. And I realized we were kind of all thinking it and, and we didn't really, you know, it's hard to see it when you're in the moment, yeah. how powerful that journey was and how big of a brand we had created and how much of an impact that brand had on other young founders. Those same people that when we started WeWork Labs, it was like 50, mm-hmm. you know, 50 people who I knew their girlfriend's name or their boyfriend's name, one or two of them might have had kids, so I knew their kids' names. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew what they were working on. I knew what they were passionate about. And at this point, we're looking around, and there were thousands of WeWork members. There were hundreds of WeWork employees, um, and there was no end in sight. Like it was, it felt like we were still in day one. Yeah. So the journey was was incredible. Um, and then early last year, um, I had been investing as an angel for for about a year and a half. Yeah. And as I said earlier in this conversation. I'm not very good at sort of splitting my time up. Uh, And so what was supposed to be like 10 or 20% of my time doing angel investing, you know, nights and weekends was quickly becoming, you know, 40 or 50% of my time. I was investing, it turned out in a company a month for a year and a half. Some of these companies were growing. Some of them were getting into M&A talks. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of them were raising their next rounds of capital. And I was spending a lot of time with them and I realized I really loved that part. I yeah. go back to starting the, you know, the idea of an incubator. I loved working with those founders. Yeah. So earlier last year, I got into a car with Adam at WeWork and I said, listen, I've been you know, investing for a year and a half. I believe this is what I want to do with my career. I believe I want to invest inside, you know, I want to invest in our community, right? All of these people that are building these companies they're going to be these, you know, diamond in the rough kind of things. You know, we're going to see these two founders with an idea, no product yet. Who I just look at them like, I want to be a part of their journey, right? I want to, I want to be a part of that ride. I want to help them where I can. And Adam literally just looked at me and he's like, so do it, like, go do it. He's like, if that's what you love doing, like, don't, don't stick around here. Like, don't be a part of this because it's not something, you know, after five plus years of being a part of that, um, organization, it, it was it was big, it was awesome, it was powerful. Yeah. But I no longer knew all my coworkers. I no longer knew all of our customers. You know, and uh, and that I wanted to go back to that. And I say I think I had the same problem. You know, when I was at Live Person, you know, it's a public company. It was yeah. like it was cool. Super you could cool. see the stock ticker on the Nasdaq go up and down each day, and that was fun to look at. I still have, I think, in my bio, like you know, ran tech at Live Person, and then parentheses like 
you know, NASDAQ, LPSA. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, it was like, yeah, that yeah. was like a badge of honor, but, yeah. but it wasn't a badge that I wanted to wear. Yeah. It was a badge for them. Yeah, it's good. And so I stepped down from WeWork um, full-time. I still spend a lot of time with the executive team there, helping out in a couple areas, sort of as, as an advisor to, to some extent. But I really wanted to set off to invest full-time. And that journey led me to meeting, spending more time and meeting my partners uh, eventually here at Flybridge, where I joined as a GP uh, back in, it was June of last year, so almost yeah. almost a almost year. year. So, I mean, so we were they didn't actually come up with the idea of like a co-working space. So what do you think we did specifically <laughs> to, you know, win ultimately? Because co-working space existed before we did. Yeah. So what did you guys do that made you guys be number one? So I thought about this a lot. I've answered this question a lot. And it's probably this, I've probably answered this question differently over the last five years as, as it's crystallized. And five years from now, if you ask yeah. me the question, I may have a different answer again. <laughs> I think there are two things that make you know, a company go from being, a, you know, a business to a real big company and then eventually to sort of a, a movement, right? Something beyond a, a corporation, right? Yeah. And that, I would put in that bucket, you know, Apple, Facebook, you know, it is a, it's a way of life. It's mm-hmm. people spend hours of their day interacting with those brands. Nike is another one. Yeah. Um, and there just aren't that many companies like that in the world. Um, for good reason, right? There's only 24 hours in your day. So... There can only be so many brands yeah, so that everybody interacts with, right? Yeah. If 1.8 billion people a month use Facebook, there can only be a few Facebooks before yeah. you hit 7 billion people in the yeah. world. Um, so I think one of the things that makes that happen is, is leaders are leaders that can scale. And very few founders will have the mental or emotional capacity to go from you know zero to... 20 employees, which is a big moment in time. When you get to 20 employees, you start to have people managers. Yeah. And then from 20 to 120 employees, and 120 is about the number where you start to break down the ability to know everybody. Yeah. From 120, you know, to 500, where for most companies that means you're in multiple geographic places. It might be in the same city, but you have multiple floors, multiple offices. And then from 500 to kind of 5,000, and, and that 500 to 5,000 is obviously a leap from being New York or New York and SF to being a, a, a global company, right? Yeah. Um, very few founders have, have the emotional or sort of technical capacity to, to go from zero to 5,000. Right. When you find those people, they can bring along the mission and the vision from day one, you know, to... to year seven however many days that is can't yeah. do the math in my head um, there's there's a type of team that gets built around them and there's a type of team that follows them mm-hmm. that in my belief they're 10x more powerful than just hiring people along the way like yeah. Adam's superpower we work is being able to pull 10x more from every employee yeah. and make them believe in themselves that they can do it mm-hmm. you know and that's a rare quality in a founder so yeah. one thing is the, the founders and the founding team being able to do that the other thing that WeWork had going for it was, I think I said this in the beginning, but the mission and the vision for WeWork was always, and this is hard to believe, um, but I, I've gut checked this. I've talked to people about this who were there at the beginning to make sure I'm not just like telling a story in my own head. Yeah. The story wasn't as clear as it is now, but the mission of WeWork was always to create the most valuable community of professionals of what we now call creators, you know, founders, 
freelancers, small business owners, um, and eventually big business owners, the most powerful and valuable community of those people. And I remember when we opened the building in San Francisco, there was a comparison made in an article, probably by us, I'm not sure that a reporter took the leap that we may have said it, but that we were like the physical version of like LinkedIn, mm. right? And, and we actually had written on the door of our first building in, in Soma in San Francisco was the world's first physical social network. Wow. Which was a silly statement to make and nobody really knew what it was. And, and I think when you're in the Bay Area, people probably just laughed at it. Yeah. But the vision was there, which was if we can bring some of the smartest people in the world together into a physical space, yeah the benefits of having those brilliant minds and those emotionally and you know capable people of, of connecting with others would far surpass any you know feed based you know network based digital platform yeah. i mean i don't know how many connections you have on linkedin i have thousands i'm yeah, sure thousands. and even if you assume that i've met all of them at some point in my life which i'm sure i haven't um the the bond that i have with them is 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 so tiny yeah um, and so every decision that was made from the earliest days of WeWork was made with that eventual sort of vision and mission in mind. Mm. And that means that in many cases we made decisions that were sounded irrational at the time. I, I always use the, the free coffee or the free beer as an example. Free beer and free coffee is, is not a cheap line item in WeWork's budget. Yeah. There are 140 buildings open today yeah. across like 30 countries, I think, yeah. or something insane now. But even when we were four buildings, we had four buildings and every building had 500 people in it. Yeah. You're talking about providing beer and coffee to thousands of people mm. when you haven't raised a dollar. When you're making money, your unit economics are positive, yeah. but it's not, you know, it's not a 98% margin business, yeah. right? <laughs> um, you have physical spaces, you have staff, you have people running these businesses. Yeah. But we knew that if we had these things, you would go out to a coffee shop one less time a day, which meant you would bump into somebody, that serendipity, that, that creating your luck would happen yeah. that much more often. When seven o'clock hit, and you were like, man, our teams are working hard. We should go out and grab a drink at the bar, celebrate our great day. If instead you chose to stay in that office with all glass, you would go over and you'd get a beer and somebody would look out through their glass window and they'd see you and they would come and have a beer with you. Yeah. And so seven o'clock wouldn't be the time you'd leave, it'd be nine o'clock. And if we did that, the belief was those relationships would be more powerful, they'd be stronger we believe that getting a bunch of smart minds together is way better than one smart mind working and they yeah. would create more value. Yeah. And I think we've proven that to be the case. Right. Um, we, we would say there have been, uh, there have been, you know, if we just look at venture capital, there have been billions of dollars raised by WeWork members over the years. There have been many companies that have gone on to make hundreds of millions, probably billions of dollars in revenue at this point. If I had to guess, there's 100,000 people that work in WeWork around the globe, so I'm assuming. Yeah. Um, but more important than that, many of those people built their businesses by working with the people sitting next to them yeah. or down the hall from them. Yeah. And I think if you build a business with the end goal, and by the way, WeWork hasn't hit that end goal yet, right? It, yeah. it may or may not be the most powerful, you know, invaluable physical, you know, social network of, or network of professionals in the world yet. But 100,000 people is not small. It's not small. 
And a company that makes nearly a billion dollars a year is not small, right? And so, so we're well on the way to doing it. And the, the end goal, that end vision is still probably 30 years out, yeah. right? And, and we're still thinking 30 years out. And so I think those two things, the combination of the leaders being able to bring people along for that journey and that mission and being able to grow with it, um, and the fact that that mission and that vision was was so far out there meant that, sure, we made many mistakes along the way. Mm. We had many times when things were super difficult. We opened a floor of 220 people one day that all had to move into the office and we walked in and it was still under construction. It had no lights, it wow. had no desks. We had to find a place but 220 people in New York City for a couple days. Like, yeah. you know, plenty of stories like this. I have plenty of other stories to tell. <laughs> that but, sounds horrible. <laughs> uh, it, it was horrible. Um, but we got past all those things because it was never about, you know, could we be the best at opening a floor? Yeah. That wasn't the goal, yeah. right? And if it had been the goal, we probably would be the best at opening a floor. And maybe we even are now, but that was many years ago. Um, but we wouldn't be nearly as big as we are now. We wouldn't have this movement that follows us where people strive to work in an environment and with an ethos that, that WeWork is. Yeah. Whether or not you work inside of a WeWork building is actually not that important. Mm. If you're working in an environment where you're sharing and you're collaborating and you're building together, that's what WeWork at this point stands for. Right. Now, we think we're one of the best places to do that. Yeah. I think the business with you, <laughs> Adam would tell you, we are the place to come and do that anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. But I think what's more important is that the people that work there have that mindset. Yeah. And we'd much rather those people take that mindset with them and invite other people to join them on their journey the same way that we did in the early days at WeWork than we would them choose to just continue to pay us and like just have an office. Yeah. Um, is, is just not that interesting. Yeah. Oh man, I had so many questions about that. <laughs> um, but I'm just going to be mindful of the time. So I want to switch gears a little bit now and talk a little bit more about your investment yeah. business now. So Flybridge Ventures. Um, is it Ventures? Flybridge Ventures. Capital, yeah. Flybridge Capital. Um, what is your investment thesis and like how early do you get involved with startups? Yeah, so I've been a part of Flybridge now for a year. Um, the firm's been around for 15 years. Yeah. Uh, my partners are significantly older than I am and have way more experience than I do, both as operators probably, but definitely as venture capitalists. Sure. Um, I would say that a year into this, I don't know that I've crystallized my thesis yet, but I can tell you what I'm most interested in. Sure. As a fund, we're, we're a seed fund. We're split between New York and Boston. Our goal is to predominantly invest in companies based here in the Northeast. Yeah. Um, I'd say about 70% of our portfolio fits into that bucket, maybe 30% right. elsewhere, Chicago, um, we've got a company in Florida, LA, San Francisco. Um, as a seed fund, um, our goal is really to be you know, the first institutional investor in a company. So you might raise your few hundred K of friends and family in order to get that prototype out the door, but we're happy to step in when you're building that prototype, when you have the first product and you haven't necessarily found product market fit. Sure. But we're really backing smart, hardworking people building interesting solutions in what are hopefully really big potential markets, right? Sure. And so not dissimilar from lots of other seed funds uh, in that regard. I think where we have a little bit of uniqueness is that there are four partners, including myself. We each have areas that we're either really interested in or have deep experience in. Sure. And we leverage the fact that each of us have such 
varied interests to kind of see a pretty broad group of companies and to work together to kind of, I would say, uh, justify investing in the best companies. Like if we all had a similar background, I think it would be really easy for us to just be like, yeah, that company's a good idea because we all like it, we all understand it. When we have to educate each other on these different industries and these types of businesses, yeah. we actually have a much more interesting conversation. We ask mm. questions that you might not otherwise ask. Sometimes you just assume an answer because you just get that space. So yeah. my partner Chip has backed successfully many developer platforms, developer-driven platforms. We were early in Firebase, Crashlytics, MongoDB, wow. um, which has been phenomenal. He continues to look at that. We just backed another company um, in that space uh, that just went through Techstars in Boston. Uh, my partner Jeff has a background in fintech and education tech, so he founded You Promise, uh, which some people who are listening may know what it is, but uh, it's a product that actually helped people f- pay for college. Um, that was acquired by Sally May. Um, he's backed uh, Code Academy is another one where we think wow. that education is completely shifting. Yeah. Uh, my partner David, on the other hand, has a background in security and is really interested in how security the internet of things and the fact that networks are completely borderless now where everybody's using SaaS and cloud products, mm-hmm. how we manage and control that information, especially for enterprises, but also for consumers. How do consumers protect the fact that they probably have 15 devices on the internet in their home? They probably don't even remember that they have three, yeah. <laughs> but their TV, their lights, their yeah. toaster oven for all they know as online and so how do we give them the tools to make sure that you know no one's spying on their you know chinese webcam no one is you know uh, stealing their internet we talked about before we started yeah. this the fact that we have a really uh, uh difficult password for our flybridge network um but you know how do we make sure people aren't stealing internet so he's really into that space and his back companies like better cloud and ns1 and valimel all around security and then i come in a year ago and i am super passionate about one thing which is our peers, you know, the millennial generation, mm-hmm. Gen Z, and people that are older than us who, who work in this new way, yeah. love, you know, fundamentally love to work differently. We want to work for ourselves. We want to work for things we're passionate about. Yeah. We want to live differently. We don't necessarily want to stay in one home for 30 years. We don't necessarily want the white picket fence. Yeah. Um, we want to start, in some areas, we want to start families a little later. We want to mm-hmm. travel the world. Yeah. Um, with technology, the world is, is becoming flatter and flatter every day. Some of my best friends, you know, live in California, in London, in Australia, mm-hmm. and I feel like I know them as well as I know some of my best friends that sit next to me in the office. Yeah. Um, and so as the world becomes flatter, as people work differently, as they live differently, as they learn differently, right? I, I went to college, I wound up dropping out and starting to work. Companies today need leaders who can work in that flat world, who yeah. can be culturally sensitive, yeah. um, who can deal with multiple languages, mm-hmm. um, who can deal with multiple time zones, which can be tiring. Um, I want to invest in companies that are helping to power that generation of, of work and life. And so i positive that my years helping to build WeWork and We Live definitely have an influence on that. Yeah. But I'm also positive that I live that way. I mean, I bought... My, my first house is not my place here in New York. I actually bought you know a house outside the city. Lots of my peers are doing that too. They don't mm-hmm. want to necessarily own real estate that they know is probably going to appreciate in value if I buy in New York City. Yeah. They want to own an experience, right? Mm-hmm. They'd rather pay for that. 
Um, we've seen the rise of Airbnb and now they're launching their whole concept of trips and experiences. Yeah. We love to pay for experience. We'd much rather do that. Sure. Um, so for me, I want to back founders and companies that are helping to power both the fundamentals of that. So in some cases, working differently means that taxes are going to be different. Yeah. Healthcare is going to be different. Yeah. Payroll is going to be different. Yeah. Um, how we how we deal with payments in general will be different. Um, when we want to live differently and we're traveling all over the world, how we communicate is different. You know, we went from a world where we only communicated not that long ago in person. Mm-hmm. Then we had the telegram for a short period of time. Then we had snail mail. So now you could communicate with people who weren't your neighbors. And then we got to this point where we were doing this synchronous communication over the telephone, which was exciting, mm-hmm. but it takes a lot of effort. And not long after that, we started to see this rise of asynchronous communication, whether it was text messaging and then email, and then from email to message boards online or, or, or you know, Usenet and, and things like that. And then on to today, we have you know, HipChat or Slack. Yeah. Part of the rise of these things is that companies are global. And so you can't always pick up the phone and call your colleague who's in China, where right now it's uh, you know, one in the morning and yeah. hopefully he's asleep. Um, but I still need to communicate. I still need to build that mm. business. And so for me, I think that there are still gaping holes in this. Yeah. I mean, just, I can, I can list off 20 areas that I'm interested in, but the truth is I'll probably invest in the 20 areas that I wouldn't think of right now. Yeah. One of the most recent investments is in the future of retail. It's how people consume differently. Mm. Um, we buy online, which means that retail is struggling in a huge way. And it's predominantly because people don't want to buy in the store. Yeah. doesn't mean they don't want to go out to a store, right? Like we're not all like sitting in our homes. We, we haven't hit the Wally moment yet yeah, you know, yeah, where yeah. we're sitting in a chair for the rest of our lives. <laughs> we still want to do things. Yeah. We just don't want to go down to Soho and like walk into a store, try a bunch of stuff on, buy a bunch of bags, carry them around the city. Mm. That's not our thing. We'd rather just open up our phone, launch the Amazon app and buy that shoe that we like, yeah. you know, from Zappos, I guess. But, um, and so the future of retail will look fundamentally different. The future of workspace is already changing, right? We have WeWork in there, but there's even newer models coming up from that, which is, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily want to even have a desk. I want to have a thousand desks. Yeah. Right? And, and we work as a membership for that where you can work from any WeWork space, but there are other companies thinking about that as well in different regions, different models. Yeah. So and then, I'm really excited about yeah, that. Yeah. And I wanted to talk about um, one of your investments in particular, actually, um, ClassPass. <laughs> so I, I invested in ClassPass through uh, an acquisition. So I didn't directly invest in them, oh, okay. uh, but I, I backed FitMob. FitMob, yes. Um, that was Raj. Yeah, and uh, and and then I've I've backed another company that's about to launch. It's in this space called Studio. Um, but ClassPass, I was just talking to that founder um, of Studio yesterday. ClassPass is an incredible business for one thing. I mean, they do lots of things really well, but ClassPass is a discovery and experience platform. Right? They're not actually, I mean, they're technically a fitness platform or a wellness platform. Yeah. But what they are amazing at is that mil- millions of people trust that ClassPass is going to help to deliver them new and exciting experiences, things that will make them better people, mm. though in general healthier or, or more mindful. Um, but really that's what ClassPass and FitMob was all about. What becomes really interesting is if you think of a world where we can be anywhere at any time, you know, what happens when you're on a remote island somewhere doing your job and you're sitting on a beach because you can be online and have LTE speed so no yeah. one's even going to know and now you want to 
be healthier, right? We just saw this week Peloton raised a big round yeah, of capital for doing this in your home. Yeah. But what happens when you don't have a home, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I think about it, I think there's this evolution that we're still going to want to discover really exciting things to do. We're still going to want to be healthy and, and, and more fit than we are now. And we're seeing that millennials spend a huge percentage of their income on, on wellness and mindfulness. And we've seen that with the rise of Headspace, um, a bunch of others. But there's a real question as to what do those classes look like? Mm. You know, how do we continue to be healthy if we're moving around every day or every month um, and we don't own a home? So we can't have gear that we're traveling with us. Like airlines are pretty stingy about how much weight you can carry. So you're not bringing all your workout gear with you. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think it's really exciting. Like the idea that people will go from, you know, having maybe a gym in their building or having a gym membership to traveling around a city to trying a new thing every day or every week to eventually bringing those experiences with them. And maybe it'll be VR and AR that enable that. Maybe it'll just be your iPhone or an Apple Watch that'll enable that. I'm not totally sure yet. But um, but I think it's an exciting moment right now where there are 92 million millennials who fundamentally want to you know live flexibly and work flexibly. Yeah. And that means that every other thing that they do has to be flexible with them. And so I'm excited to see what ClassPass continues to build in this space. I'm excited to see what Studio does in this space. Um, but that company has been fascinating to watch their rise yeah. because the brand is so trusted among such a powerful and influential audience. Yeah. Um, and, and as we said earlier, there just aren't that many brands that have that kind of power. Sure. Um, so we've just got to work towards wrapping up now, but I just wanted to ask, um, so... How should startups approach the fundraising process? It's a big advice. It's a big question. It is a big Uh, question, I know. (laughs) So I'll speak for early stage. Yeah, early Um, stage startups. And and so where I'm most excited about investing, where I spend most of my time learning about this, and keep in mind, I've been in venture for a year. I've been investing for a few years in companies. So I'm by no means an expert yet. Sure. if we think about the couple of stages, one that's kind of a newer stage, which is like the pre-seed, which is the, used to be kind of the friends and family, now mm-hmm. there are pre-seed funds, so whatever you want to call it. This is the stage where, you're, where you're, you've got an idea, you maybe have some research, you have two or three of you working on this thing, and you're building the prototype, you're building V1. Yeah. I think if you have the opportunity to raise money from people who have been through this journey before, by all means, take it. Take that over just, you know, random friends and family money. Sure. If you have the opportunity to take that money from a pre-seed vehicle, pre-seed fund, that has a bunch of other companies that are at your stage, I'd take that over the angels. Right. Um, I think you get benefit from being a part of that community and sure. that experience. I think when you think about pitching, though, at that stage, the most important thing is to tell the story about why you and why now. Yeah. It's not so much about the solution. Yeah. It's why are you the right person to work in this space? And why is now the moment in time when it's going to work? Because I can almost guarantee that 90 plus percent of the pitches that I get are not new concepts, right? Mm-hmm. And we talked about it with WeWork. They didn't create the idea of coworking, mm-hmm. and, and coworking had been around for years. And by the way, they didn't create the idea, coworking wasn't the first idea of communal living or working. I mean, the, the kibbutz in Israel from thousands of years yeah, ago, yeah, they were already doing that, right? So, yeah. so that wasn't new and novel. What was new and novel was that the world was shifting into a place where people wanted to work for themselves or work with smaller groups of people. And in order to do that, 
they needed something more flexible, right? They couldn't sign a 10-year lease on 5,000 square feet in New York City. Yeah. Um, so that's why that worked. Um, I think telling the why you and why now is most important at the pre-seed. The why now is really exactly what I was saying about WeWork. What, what's happening in the world that's causing, that you believe is going to be disrupted? It may be the ease of travel. It may be the... Um, the rise of people learning through like MOOCs or other educational platforms mm-hmm. or where they're not doing the four-year degree or the master's or doing something else. Um, it may be that companies are realizing that they have to shift. One of my investments remote year is really about powering the ability for Fortune 1000 companies to let their millennial workforce or their workforce that wants to be more flexible and travel to do that while working for them successfully, right? And not just sending them off to some random place, but like giving <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. them a way to be successful in doing it. Actually, looked at them yeah, last year. <laughs> I uh, so I'm super excited about those guys. And so I think the pre-seed is the why you and why now. It's so it's so not about what is the product and what's the business model going to be. You're looking for investors who can take that leap on their own, right? When you get to the point that you now have your first version of your product, you're going out to raise that seed round, which is where we really play most of the time. You know, you're raising a million bucks or mm-hmm. two million bucks. You still have to tell the why, why us, and why now. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing you get to say is, what's my hypothesis, right? I've done all this research and I believe that people are going to be willing to pay either a premium or, or not, depending on what your business is, but I believe that people are going to be willing to pay to solve this problem differently mm. than they otherwise could. Sometimes it means they couldn't pay to solve it because it didn't exist before, you know, for, for what they needed. So I think of something like, uh, we backed a company called um, Splice, which is a music creator platform. And the idea is like the creation of music has shifted to being predominantly on the computer. Mm-hmm the tools and the way that people make music hasn't changed in 25 years. And so where we probably take for granted that like we collaborate on Google Docs or Dropbox, they're literally shipping hard drives between two musicians to like work on a song together. Yeah. Um, Which sounds insane if you're a software engineer because you have GitHub and you just like push and pull your your bits and bytes and like you can have a global team working on software. So for these guys, the, the, the only way to make music together before Splice was to spend tens of thousands of dollars on sound, samples, instruments, studio time. Maybe you had to give up 90% of your upside to a label in order to get that money. And with Splice, they're gonna democratize all of that. Sure. And an interesting fact, one third of the world's population has attempted to make music in their lives. Only 25 million people a year actually publish a track. There's a pretty big gap (laughs) into what that is. And so they're like, why now? Is because a shitload of people want to make music and they can't afford to do it and they don't have access to the tools to do it. Right. And the hypothesis is that people, even people who don't necessarily want to sell their music, would pay something in order to take that emotional journey, in order to create that really cool thing that you know they want to get that first track out. Yeah. So I think at the seed, you add on top of that the why us, why now, and here's my hypothesis. You know, and you may have multiple as to either what someone is willing to pay mm-hmm. or why somebody else would be willing to pay for that person if yeah. you're building you know, a social product or you're building uh, something that's gonna be ad supported. I think most pitches that I get don't actually answer that why us and why now question very yeah. well. 
Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that's, if you're thinking about going out and pitching investors, whether it's us as a fund or even an angel, th that's the number one thing. I'm investing in, in the team mm. and I'm investing in the fact that the team has thought enough about the world changing that this is the time to do it. Because you're buying yourself typically 12 to 18 months. Yeah. That's what you should be raising in almost every yeah, round. Sure. And so the world's got to be changing now. Yeah. Like not, <laughs> not in five years. Yeah. Um, there are people that raise, by the way, funding rounds for a five-year plan. Mm -hmm. Completely different pitch. And typically it's not first-time founders. Either yeah. People have proven it before. And that's a big risk. Um, and it needs a lot of capital. And you potentially give up a lot of the company. And, you know, most of us are not fortune tellers and so you know or, or we can't see the future and so five years is a really long time five years ago we work had like a thousand members it has a hundred thousand people now like five years ago um you know snap was a like little app that like a handful of like high school students were using right it wasn't a, a multi-billion dollar publicly traded company yeah true. so i think five years is a long time so i think if you're thinking the 12 to 18 months out the why now is actually pretty e It should be an easy question mm -hmm. to answer, yeah. but it needs to be well thought out, right? It should be thoughtful. It shouldn't be off the cuff. Sure. Um, and so I think that's what I would advise if people are going out to raise that first round of capital, um, those, those two or three questions are the most important ones to answer. And I'm buying that you're going to figure out that how to do it yeah. and what does it look like yeah. somewhere along the way. That's good. Okay. Last few questions. Uh, favorite book? So I have a book that I read every year. Um, I don't know if it's my favorite book, but it's the one that helps to fix one significant problem that I have, and I think a lot of people have, and it's called Leadership and Self-Deception. Mm. And it's written by a, it was written by a, a group, like a research group or something. It's not, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of fictional educational book. Mm. And it tells a story of this company that could be any massive multi-billion billion dollar company today, but the, the lesson that leadership and self-deception teaches is that as human beings, our brain works much faster than you know, our mouth can speak and our brain works much faster than other people can respond. Yeah. And very commonly, we judge people based on the space between the prompt and the reaction and not so much on the reaction. Mm. And what that means is that we build a profile of that person based on things that they didn't do, not based on what they did. And the example that they gave when I read the book for the first time still sticks with me. And now I have a 14 month old at home, so it, it resonates even more. But they just give the example that you've got a newborn, you're laying in bed with your partner, the newborn starts to cry, and your gut reaction, your immediate reaction as a parent is like, get out of bed and help the kid. That's, I can promise you that will be your first reaction. You'll cringe if you don't, if your kid cries. But if you pause for a second and you think, maybe my partner will do it, mm. and then your partner doesn't do it, you immediately start to think, boy, they don't care as much as I do. Mm. Like, they should get out of bed. Mm. Well, if they're not going to get out of bed for me, then they probably don't love me as much as they say they do because they wow. wouldn't want to help me. Yeah. The truth of the matter is, in that split second, A, your partner may not have heard it, maybe they're a heavy sleeper, but B, they're probably thinking the same thing about yeah. you. Yeah. And that mo those moments of inaction, those moments where you're thinking and then reacting are influence how we view other people and that can cause ripple effects for years to come. Yeah. This happens in your work, in your personal life. Um, and so I read it every year because I'm, I'm, I do that. I do that all the time. Yeah. 
and we pretty much we all do it. Um, but I read it every year to remind me of that lesson and to make me think long and hard about do I view my wife in this way because it's who she is or it's because who, who I've, it's how I've made her up to be? Do I view my partners in this way because it's who they are or have I projected onto them what I think they, you know, how I think they think? And so that to me, I don't know if it's my favorite book, but I would say that I recommend it to most, almost every founder I've ever met. And I actually reread it every year in order to help, you know, influence me being a little bit better at that. Um, I make the mistake all the time, but I, I try. Good. That's good. Um, and lastly, this might be a tough one. <laughs> what is, if you can put it down to like, I don't know, a sentence or two, a single piece of advice you give to all startups? Wow. I don't know that there's a single piece of advice. I think that... It's, as, I know, it's a case by case. Yeah, case. yeah. So I think... Maybe maybe there's a, a piece of meta advice that I, I would say again, okay. and, and, and I say it differently to different founders, but um, you should find a way as a founder to be capable of doing 20% or more of every job that that, that your company is going to have, right? Yeah. Every major role, and, you know, this company gets really big, there's lots of jobs, but, you know, you may be a brilliant software engineer and your partner is a brilliant marketer. Yeah. The marketer should learn to be able to build a little bit of software. Mm. The software guy should learn to sell and be a marketer. Yeah. Both of these people should learn about contracts. Yeah. You know, both of these people should learn about design and user experience if they don't know about it. And the reason it's important is that two things will happen along the way when building a company. 100% of companies will hire the wrong people and 100% of companies will not fire the right people. Mm. It always happens. Um, hopefully you get better and better at identifying the right people and the wrong people, yeah. but it will happen. One of the biggest reasons you hire the wrong people is because you're, you don't actually understand what their job is going to be. Yes. One of the reasons you don't fire the right people is because you're afraid of filling that gap. And so I think that when you start a company, really taking time to learn that first 20% um, is one of the ways that you'll hire better, you'll fire better, and you'll also be able to understand and have that EQ, that sort of emotional mm -hmm. capacity to, to know what your colleagues are going through. And it's really common for software engineers, for instance, to like measure their work by number of lines of code mm. written. And by the way, GitHub makes it really easy to see that. You can like run a report. They like the top left chart is like how many commits you've had, right? Yeah. So amongst software engineers, that may be a fine way to see who's doing more or less. But comparing that to the business development person who's out there trying to close the first deal and they're getting coffee and drinks and they're you know, going to visit clients or whatever, it's very hard to, to quantify the work between yeah. those two. And really the only way to do it is through emotion, not through intellect. It's not, you're never going to find like an apples to apples and you're not going to yeah. have like a leaderboard of worker and like this person yeah. is just better, you know, that's yeah. not how it works. <laughs> so I think that learning the first 20% is one of the most important things that you can do. And if you do that, you'll build a better team, you'll build a more scalable team. And most importantly, as I was saying at the beginning of WeWork, having that emotional connection means you'll be able to motivate people in a way that is not you, you know, dictating, you know, yeah. make that campaign better. It's like, I understand what it takes to make that campaign better. Let's 
let's discuss it, right? Yeah. I've been in your shoes. And, yeah. and I think too many founders are afraid of, of, you know, learning those other skills either because they think they're too hard or they're too busy. Mm-hmm. And that's perfectly fair. That happens. But I would take the extra effort and the extra time to try and do that. That's good. That's good advice. Not a sentence or two, but... <laughs> so learn, learn the first 20% of every job. Yeah, that's, no, that's, that's good. The, that's, that's great. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, where can people find you? So you can find me uh, on Twitter. I'm at sarcasm. Um, I write a little bit on Medium at jessemiddleton.com. And mostly, I mean, people can send me a message on Facebook, LinkedIn. They can email me at the letter J at flybridge.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Jesse. Thank you so much. Just want to say another massive thank you to Jesse for coming on the show and dropping all that wisdom on us. Wow. I'm definitely going to have this episode on repeat. (laughs) Um, So guys, you know how we do it at this time in the show. I like to give you my top three key takeaways and then you guys can tweet me yours. So number one, why you, why now? At the pre-seed stage, Jesse said, investors don't really focus on the product per se. They really want to know about you. So you really need to hone in on your qualities and your story because the investor wants to know, like, why you and why now? That's what you really want to get across. Number two, spreading yourself too thin. This is something that I know all too well myself. And Jesse spoke about spreading himself too thin when he was trying to run three startups at once, which is insane. So try and focus and streamline. No one or very few people can spin many plates without compromising the quality on one, if not all. So don't spread yourself too thin, guys. Just drop something. And finally, this is something that I really liked when Jesse said this. If you're a founder, you should really know at least 20% of everything in your company. This is gold because by knowing 20% of everything in your company, you'll be a much better manager because you have a much better appreciation for everyone's role. And thus you'll be able to make better hires because you know what you need. Now this goes from everything from programming to marketing to product, like 20% of everything across the board. You don't need to be an expert, but by knowing 20% of everything in your company, you'll be a much better founder. So guys, thank you so much for listening to the show. As always, you can follow us at Startup Handmedowns on Instagram, Startup HMD on Twitter. And please, if you haven't already, subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, guys. Thanks.